My guest on this episode of the Living Peace Podcast is author Michelle Hoff. Trained as a lawyer, Michelle negotiated contracts for one of the Silicon Valley's top tech companies. A personal spiritual journey led Michelle to realize that negotiation was not a zero-sum game, but a deep quest for connection and understanding. Michelle expressed her ideas in her book, The Transformative Negotiator. Michelle Hoff, welcome to Living Peace Podcast. Thank you, Henry. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. So I'd like to begin our conversation uh, with asking you to read from your book, Transformative Negotiator. And this is from a chapter called Embrace the Present, Move into the Future. Would you, would you start by reading for us the first three paragraphs? Yes. Um, a negotiator can see the universe in one of two ways, as many separate distinct parts randomly thrown together or as one unified whole. The separation approach leads to trying to gain or retain control in negotiations. The unified approach recognizes that every action has a universal dimension. When we negotiate using this unified approach, we abandon our egos, but not our goals. The negotiation conducts itself, and we see the individual actors as vehicles through which energy flows. Hmm. Thank you. So I'm curious, Michelle, how did, how did you arrive at this very transformative view, uh, very expansive view uh, of negotiation? Well, I, I think I started um, as a negotiator when I first started my career. I worked, in, uh, I worked in litigation, and then I actually worked in the corporate world for, for quite some time negotiating commercial contracts. What I realized, I think, is that in parallel, I had that is, started my sort of Buddhist practice and what I was seeing is that I was not negotiating the way most lawyers uh, were negotiating. The, the ones that I was negotiating with uh, tended to be informed by their legal sort of background and experiences and knowledge. And I think what happens in law school, I don't know, you might have experienced this, is that law school almost reinforces ego in you. So you, you tend to spend the three years or however long you're in law school, if you take advanced degrees, learning that you are sort of a, a supreme being, that you have this specialized knowledge that no one else has. And it, it, it reinforces the whole idea of ego and being always being right, always knowing the answer. Um, and I, I had to fight very hard against that in law school, but I realized that as I started to develop and deepen my Buddhist practice, I was able to balance those two things. So I always had in me the ability to almost let go of that attachment. And so what I realized is as I was negotiating mostly with other lawyers, I had this, I, I think I sensed that somehow I had an advantage, even though people looking from the outside might've thought, well, you know, you might've, you might, you might, seem weaker than than the other lawyers if you were you know willing to not hold on to this this ego position but i, I found that i was very um 
successful as a negotiator. And so I, I thought, well, there must be something to this. Uh, there must be something to this feeling that um, you didn't need to always be right, that you didn't have to hold on to that ego position in order to come up with good, positive, healthy solutions to particular issues that you were trying to negotiate. And so I focused a lot on the people in the negotiation as opposed to the sort of the materialistic, what are we going for? What, what, is the, what, are, what are the outcomes? I instead focused a lot of my energy on building the relationships with, with the negotiators and with the clients and with the other party. Hmm. And I think in your book, you talk a lot about connection. And I think this is our fundamental need for connection, whether we are negotiating a commercial contract or whether we are um, in, in a relationship with someone. We have that fundamental need of connection. So in negotiating, in transformative negotiating, how do we begin to meet this fundamental need for connection, which I think, I agree with you, law school tends to dull a bit uh, by, by focusing so much on, on, on really a, a form of positional bargaining. Mm -hmm. How do we reestablish that connection with the parties, the people we negotiate with? Well, it's a very interesting question. I think it's, it, it, there are many answers that people could give. I, as you know, I started my book with the chapter on listening. Mm -hmm. So that might give you a clue as to, at least for me, what I feel is a fundamental skill that is required for connecting with people that I think we often overlook. And I know that myself as a lawyer, I recount in the book several times, I had a very difficult time learning or relearning. I think as, as children, we sort of know how to listen because we're, we're taught to listen. But then as we grow older, I think we lose the ability to really deeply listen. We spend a lot of time talking and preparing to talk while other people are listening, but we're not actually listening to what people are saying. So I think as, as, as I wrote, um, I think listening is one of the sort of key skills to reestablishing connection or establishing connection in the first instance with a negotiating partner, as you said, whether that be someone on the other side of the table with a commercial entity or in a relationship in your life with a family member or a friend. Um, listening is really critical, I think. And, and we, we have, many of us, I think, have lost the ability to truly listen. And I think that sometimes when people are, are, are asking questions um, and coming to you with, with, with issues or problems, they don't necessarily want you to solve them, which is a very difficult thing for a lawyer, uh, for a person who considers herself like I do, a problem solver. Uh, it's hard not to jump in and want to solve the problem, but just to sit back and without any judgment, without, you know, with just with an open heart and an open mind, really listen to what the other person is saying. Mm. So I, I think that helps. Uh, that's one step, obviously, in building in building connection with someone else. And as I was reading your your chapter and listening, what what struck me was we're not just talking about listening to the words, 
that people say. But actually, tuning in uh, to what's behind the words, to the energy, to the feelings, mm -hmm. to the values, and then to the needs uh, that are all sometimes very subtly behind the words. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's another thing that's, that's difficult is that in our world now where multitasking is sort of the, 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 the key essential skill that people have, have learned to develop, I don't think it's natural for us to do this. But I think it's it's just been sort of thrust upon us because of technology and our accessibility as people to the, the sort of technological world with things beeping at us and 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 calling us at all times. Um, I think it's very very difficult to actually focus specifically on another person and really deeply hear. Not, as you said, not only what they're saying, not only the words that are coming out of the mouth, but how they're saying it. What is their, what is their stance? Is it, are they in distress? Are they, is it, is it a, is it a pleasant conversation with someone? Is it, uh, is the, is the voice raised? Are the arms crossed? Are we, what are the cues, the, the sort of the nonverbal cues that we're also supposed to pay attention to uh, when we're listening, but sometimes we miss them because we are, you know, over here, you know, doing something on a computer or um, looking at our phone and trying to do two or three things at the same time. And, and, and I found that this is um, especially difficult because a lot of negotiations now, uh, because the technology is so advanced, don't take place in person. Um, it used to be that, you know, when I worked at Sun Microsystems, I used to fly to Japan to negotiate deals uh, with, with customers. Now we have so many different technological avenues that we rarely do face-to-face -face negotiations anymore. A lot of negotiations are either on the phone or by Skype, which is okay, but it's not the same as being in the room. And as you said, you're, you use the key word, really touching on the energy of the person. What is, what is energetically happening in that room? Um, and how do you react to it as a negotiator? Those are really important things, I think, that we we don't always have available to us. So I spend some time in the book uh, talking about ways to kind of get back to that, if you can, um, mm -hmm. by making sure that you have uh, uh, carved out a space, right? In, order, in other words, if there's something going on and you've made an appointment with someone to negotiate on the phone, or, to, or by Skype, and there are other distractions, sometimes it's better just to say, you know, now is maybe not be the right time for us to have this uh, conversation. Maybe we should reschedule for another time when we can both give it our full attention. Uh, because I think what happens is you, you, you get derailed in negotiations when you're not giving your full attention. Because you're ignoring the human connection, as you said, the most important thing, that, that connection with the human being who is, you know, across from you, either by Skype or, you know, on the phone. Mm. And something else, just to build on that, Michelle, something else I took from the book, that to really connect with another person, uh, a negotiating partner, we must start with connecting with ourselves. Yes. Because if we are not connected, if we don't have the connection here, connection within, um, 
then perhaps we can pretend for a little bit to connect with, with other people, um, but it's not going to be authentic and, and it's not going to be true understanding. And in fact, in your book, you talk quite a bit about anchors um, mm -hmm. that you've used to connect with yourself to really in, in, enable you to be a better listener, to tune in to your own energy and to the energy of your negotiating partners. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. I mean, what, what often happens is <clears throat> because negotiation is sort of outwardly focused and it's an energetic sort of way of connecting with someone uh, externally, we oftentimes forget about the, the, the beginning place, right? The place, uh, the root that has to be grounded. And I think um, I, I mention in the book, uh, a story about a negotiation that went terribly wrong because I really was not aware of myself in the negotiation. I was allowing the pressures of the negotiation, both real and sort of and 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 almost uh, false pressures that were imposed uh, because of deadlines and some other things, uh, pull me away from my center. And uh, it, it, was, it was very interesting because the outcome, according to my immediate boss, was that we had, we had succeeded in negotiating this deal at three o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. and, and for me, the outcome was that was horrible. It was not, you know, um, I was not centered. I didn't feel grounded. And I felt like the, the, the deal was not going to survive because of those things. But I, it was hard to explain that to my boss. I, you know, he gave me a bonus and was very excited that we had signed this major deal with this company. And I thought, oh, this is, this is awful. We're, we're not gonna, we ignored the relationship portion of, of this negotiation. And so the two parties were not really matched for each other, but we ignored all that for the sake of just getting something done. Um, but as, as to go back to your point, I spend a lot more time now when I prepare for negotiations, really centering and grounding myself. And I use the breath and I use sort of inner scans to make sure that I'm okay, that it's a good time for me to negotiate. There are, there are some good times and there are obviously some times when you're either tired or you're, maybe your brain is a little foggy you don't feel quite yourself. You might be just recovering from an illness. There are some times when it's really not a, a good time to negotiate. And I think this goes back to the idea that people assume you can separate your, your body from your mind when you can't, when everything is integrated. So a lot of people think, well, you don't need to be, you don't need to be, brain just needs to function so that you can, you know, think these things through. Um, but I, I, on some level, I really believe that everything is connected and everything is, you know, where it needs to be when you, when you start your negotiation, you have to have all of those things lined up and aligned within yourself. Mm. And, and, you know, something that you, you say really brings up uh, a thought to me on uh, the dangers of interest-based negotiation. And, 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 and of course, I'm sure you're familiar with the book on getting, getting, getting to yes. Yes. 
and, and, and the famous or now infamous example in the book of, of, of two children fighting over an orange, right? And, 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 and at one point being asked why, why are they fighting and there being a solution that doesn't take away from either and satisfies both. Right. I think that's a very dangerous example because that example makes a lot of assumptions about people, right? That people are rational actors, that people can clearly talk about their interests and most importantly, and get back to your point, that negotiation is purely kind of intellectual process Mm -hmm. uh, where we can just with, with our mind and just by asking one or two questions uh, can really get to, get, get to the heart of the issue. And that has not been my experience working with conflict resolution, working, working with negotiation and that in fact, uh, yes, the mind, what we have in our mind and our ideas of what we may want are, are, are one aspect of negotiation. But as you said, it's going so much deeper than that. And right. so I always think of when we get to interest, that's just the beginning. Yeah. That's just the beginning. Now, now we just went just a tiny, just a notch beyond the surface. But that's just the beginning because for us to really understand our negotiation partners, we need to focus on their feelings, we need to focus on their values. And then finally, uh, getting to something more, more, more fundamental, their needs, the universal mm -hmm. needs that we all share as human beings. So any, any thoughts that arise for you on that? Well, I think you, you, you definitely pinpoint what, what, what I see often goes wrong in negotiations. Mm -hmm. because I think what happens is we don't, we're, we've been conditioned not to go deeper, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we've been conditioned to, and especially in the context, I think it's a little bit different with conflict resolution because you are in a more emotional state to, to begin with. When you're, when you're in conflict, I think people are, emotions are more at the surface and, and it's more raw for people when there are these types of sort of dispute resolution, conflict resolution situations. When you're in a commercial setting, though, it's almost like taboo to have, mm -hmm. you know, to be dealing with the emotional level of things uh, at that deeper level where you're talking about feelings. And, but I think what I've found in, in the course of my professional life is that most negotiations that seem to succeed in the moment but fail as a long-term strategy, and sometimes long-term might be as short as six months, Mm -hmm. typically are those that did not de delve deeply into the sort of value system of the two entities or three or four entities and um, try to make some sense and align those values. And, and, and what often happens too, I think in our culture, you've probably found this to be true, Henry, is that mm -hmm. we don't like to fail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we've, we've, we've labeled of a, a, a failure to come to agreement as a, as a failure. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, I see sometimes that you, when you cannot come to agreement, it is not actually a failure. 
it's actually a success because it, it acknowledges that there are times when the entities just can't <clears throat> align themselves properly. It doesn't mean that you know you were one party was asking for too much or one party was you know uh, too attached to ego or whatever those things are, but in some way that there was some fundamental gap that couldn't be sort of overcome in, in a way, in a sense. And I think rather than forcing it or ignoring it and coming to an agreement that is going to fall apart six months from now, uh, if you really honor the, the relationships and the, and the deep sort of value systems of the entities and, and realize that it doesn't always match up, and it's okay that it doesn't always match up. You're free to go find other partners that might match up better. Mm -hmm. uh, we will continually have these kinds of things that uh, where people declare success, mission accomplished, and then you know everything unravels very quickly afterwards because it was just on the surface. It was only sort of a surface accomplishment. It really didn't go deep enough to root it in something that would 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 sustain it over time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think, Michelle, it brings a very important point in really uh, redefining what we what we consider to be a success in negotiation, as as you alluded to. That it's not so often we we and especially with law, especially with lawyers, it becomes a zero sum game. Right. Or a good result of negotiation becomes a settlement. But we forget the distinction between settlement and resolution. Mm -hmm. And the distinction between um, getting maybe what we want or what we think we want and understanding. And it sounds to me like your book and what you're teaching is inviting us to move away from problem solving and come to understanding and then understanding becomes a goal in itself a worthy goal in itself so even even if we may not have an agreement um and agree in agree or settlement on, on paper if we come to a negotiation table and and we leave with a better understanding of ourselves and our negotiating partners then that's a success, successful negotiation I, I couldn't have said it better, Henry. That that's exactly that's exactly how I see negotiations. It's one of the one of the reasons why I spend time in the book talking about uh, asking questions and being able to figure out um, the why the why of the negotiation. I mean, many times we come into negotiations, we make assumptions. Everybody everybody does. I've done it. I'm sure you've done it. We make assumptions about why the other party is there. Mm -hmm. about what they might need, about what, what they might want. Um, even if you know your own position and your interests and your values, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you even know what your motives are for, for negotiating. Sometimes they're external, the pressures are external, um, and, and you're responding to them. So it is important, I think, in negotiations, as you, as you go through layer by layer, to talk about these things openly. And again, this goes contrary to pretty much every negotiation theory that you're going to read about or hear about uh, that says, you know, you keep things very close to the vest. You don't share with your partner what your real strategy is. And your real, I, I, I feel like we waste 
a lot of time that way when if we were willing to share and really willing to get into the deep uh, places very quickly, it would show us whether this was a valuable um, you know, exercise. It would, it would expose to us the flaws that we have in terms of how far apart are we in our value systems or our motivations, or is there any way for us to get the other, the other thing that I think we end up doing mm -hmm. when we're, when we're afraid of asking why is we sometimes solve the wrong problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're sometimes solving the problem at a level that is sort of the apparent problem. But if we don't go deeper to understand the reasoning the underlying reasoning, we may not actually solve the underlying problem. So we may be back to the negotiating table, you know, three months from now or a year from now because we were unable to get to this sort of deep place initially. And so it just took a little while for things to kind of trickle down and then rise back up again and cause another reason for us to come back to the negotiating table. Right. So I think on some level, uh, these are things that it's very useful uh, to do, but people are not, they're not to do it. They don't, not, they're afraid. It's not something that's natural. Now, as you know, as a practitioner, um, we spend a lot of time doing just that, going very deep with ourselves in meditation and trying to understand the sort of the, the, the root of things and, and trying to make sense of that and being okay and being at peace with ourselves, even knowing that you know we have no control over anything. <laughs> so I think we're 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 um, we're well able to to impart that through our negotiations, but we have to do it in a mindful way because a lot of times people are not aware of you know what we're talking about and the language we're using to talk about. Um, to talk about negotiations, mindful, transformative, peacemaking kind of negotiations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, Michelle, what I'm hearing from you and, and, and hearing from your book is really an invitation to expand, expand our awareness. Because I think in, in whether we're talking about conflict or whether we're talking about negotiation, our focus tends to become very narrow. Mm -hmm. so in negotiation, the focus becomes very narrow on the result that we think that we want. And sometimes, uh, to paraphrase Stephen Colby, we, we, we start chopping the trees before we know we're in the right forest. Mm -hmm. um, and so what, I, what I'm hearing from you is this invitation to expand. Let's ask the question, why? Let's try to understand. And then, and then we may, may, may realize that actually what we thought we wanted as a result of this negotiation may not be what we want at all. It may be just, it, it may be that we are not even with the right partners, that, that we're not even with the right people who are negotiating. So this, this idea of expansion and trying to expand our focus as we negotiate from just being very goal oriented and result oriented to, to seeing the bigger picture. Why are we here? Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's definitely part of the challenge uh, because I think, uh, again, negotiations are narrow because of our time constraints, 
because of the pressures sometimes that are put on us to just get the deal done, just do it. Um, so I think on some level, we're pushing against those pressures when we ask people to take an expansive view, to slow down, to mm -hmm. actually really listen, which takes a lot of time and energy to actually really listen. And I think what happens is, um, even if you start the negotiation that way so that you have a nice, very expansive view of the negotiation, what you have to do is remind yourself all the way through that you should always be questioning, you should always be asking why, and, and trying to sort of come up with maybe other options. And if you get to the real why, it, it becomes a lot easier to figure out whether you're on the right path or whether you're ever going to get to the place where you can come to an agreement. Um, but you have to continually do that because if you stop at any point, then you've gone back to that, like you said, that very narrow view. I have these all resolved. So now I've got to just, I'm going to, we're just going to sign this deal and it's not perfect, but we're just, you know, we've got as, we've got as much as we can get and, and we're done. Um, I think oftentimes that last minute energy is very strong and powerful and, and ego driven. And it makes it, it makes it hard to pull back and say, okay, can we just maybe pause for a minute and just really talk about what is this relationship going to look like going forward? You know, what are we going to see once the deal is done, once the contract is signed, once the settlement is filed? What, what is going to happen to the people uh, in this negotiation later? What, you know, are we, are we, did we succeed in some way in making this um, a healthy negotiation in the sense of that people are going to be able to know how to resolve problems as they come up because they built a healthy foundation for interacting with each other, for asking by being civil and listening and being respectful and mindful. If you don't have that, then the first time an issue comes up, you're, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause a blow up, right? It's going to, it will likely not be something that you can repair because the relationship isn't healthy enough. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another important thing we think about, you know, once, once the deal is done, what happens? Those people have to continue to work together uh, for the most part if they're in a commercial relationship with each other. Uh, even in the context of a settlement agreement, if there's a dispute or some ambiguity in the agreement, you need to have some people who come back and can be civil with each other and listen to each other and try to work out if there was something that needed to be clarified as you move forward. So that's the focus really of my book as well is not forgetting that, that, that the human element is the, the sort of the, the core element mm -hmm. in negotiation and in conflict resolution. We are, you know, it is, uh, we are the core element in the negotiation and we often forget that, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just to switch gears a little bit, but also to build up on, on, on your point, um, you know, you and I are using words like mindfulness, expansion, uh, tuning in, uh, feelings, relationships, connection, and, uh, you know, speaking as a former trial lawyer, <laughs> when I was a trial lawyer, most of these words were foreign to me. 
and so I am wondering, uh, now I, I do this work now and I'm and, and, and very comfortable um, with this conversation and with the, with the paradigm um, that you're proposing, but I'm wondering how do we preach beyond the choir? <laughs> how do we have these conversations uh, with law students? With, uh, you know, we see so many examples now in politics and ev everywhere where negotiation is seen as, as just a zero sum game and uh, really ends up being who screams the loudest, who bangs on the table the most. It ends up being all about uh, showmanship and, 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 and really has very little to do with true understanding, uh, with, with building the relationships as you're talking about it. So how do we have these conversations with people who are not going to India, with people who are not doing the type of work that you and I are doing? That's a really, really good question. I mean, I think one of the, it, it was the impetus for writing the book uh, is one way of, of getting the message out beyond uh, the, 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 the usual sort of set of people who speak the same language. Mm -hmm. And so I've spent some time, not just in, in writing the book, but also in trying to teach transformative negotiation in circles where I, I intersect with people. So when I, I worked at the University of New Mexico, I spent a lot of time uh, mentoring with, uh, with uh, business incubators and startup companies. Mm -hmm. And I gave, uh, you know, just pro bono talks. I would go to, um, to big conferences. Uh, I went to the National Association of Business Incubators conferences. They have them all around the country and they also have them internationally uh, and gave workshops, little mini workshops on transformative negotiation. Yeah. I worked with the employee development organization at the University of New Mexico and taught a transformative negotiation class there. Um, now I work at uh, UC Berkeley and I'm trying to do the same thing, trying to get it sort of uh, integrated into their sort of internal system to be able to talk to students and graduate students and employees about transformative negotiation. Um, so it, it is a challenge. I mean, it, it, it definitely is something that uh, we need to do more of. Uh, you know, we need more people like us who are out there spreading the word through these types of interviews and podcasts that go out, uh, out into the, into the, onto the internet and, and out into the world. I mean, these are all really uh, important tools that we have. I mean, obviously it's, it's also useful when you're negotiating to model the behavior that, that, you know, that we've been talking about, to model the mindfulness, um, to try not to be too attached and to try to maintain a, a, a grounded uh, center of being while you're negotiating in any of your relationships, not just you know, the big negotiations that you do, but in just your everyday negotiations with people in the office. Um, uh, and, and I think the other piece of it is that as more people turn to uh, meditation of, of, of some sort, I know a lot of them come to meditation as a way of relieving stress 
of, of, of life. Uh, it almost doesn't matter how they come as long as they, as long as they do. And once they do, I think then um, I've noticed that people share their experiences with other people. So if we can get meditation, uh, even meditation, half an hour meditation sessions to be more common in the workplace where people just gather in a conference room and turn the lights down and, and spend 20 minutes just sitting quietly. It's, it, it's so impactful and so, um, so helpful for people that maybe they will see the value in actually doing it more than just as a stress relieving mechanism and start to really examine um, themselves and, and, and really start going, get, having a relationship with themselves in a way that helps them cope with uh, everything that's going on in the world, which you know is is a lot. It's a lot to cope with. There's a lot of suffering in the world. I mean, there always has been, but it seems that we are much more aware of the suffering of other beings now because of all the of the the technological advances that we've that we've uh, we've managed to accomplish. Mm. And I think just to build on this point, uh, Michelle, when, when, when I think we start meditating, uh, we may start to, to, to uh, relieve stress, but actually when we start practicing our craft, whatever the craft may be, whether it's negotiation, whether it's conflict resolution, whether it's woodworking, anything, when we start practicing our craft from that deep space within us, then the nature of the craft changes. And actually we instead of dealing with the symptoms of stress, we deal with the cause of stress. Mm -hmm. um, because from my perspective, I think one of the greatest causes of stress right now is that despite being connected on social media and, and, and having all these tools and devices that help us stay connected, we actually have less and less, ironically, yeah. a human, truly human connection. And actually, it, sound, it seems to me that if one were to practice negotiate truly negotiation uh, in the way that you teach, uh, their experience of negotiation becomes much less stressful. Because then it's not about getting something. It's about building that connection. And when we build a connection with another human being, I think it, it, it's one of our most fundamental needs. And when we, when we can meet that need, it actually becomes truly enjoyable and um, expansive experience. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's a really good point. I mean, I think what happens is as you continue to be self-reflective in, in whatever way it is that you are sort of practicing, even if, as you said, you only do it um, periodically and you only do it, uh, you know, to relieve stress or to help calm you down if you're in a situation where you feel like you're a little mm -hmm. bit out of control. I think what happens is you do start to notice things in yourself. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the beginning, right? The beginning is noticing things in yourself it's always easier to notice things in other people, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? It's always easier when you're in whatever situation you're in 
to say, oh, that person's angry, or oh, that that person doesn't know how to control their temper, or that person, you know, what? It's very simple, and we do it all the time because <clears throat> we're prone to judgment. And I think that's almost how we're built. Our brains sort of sort things in a certain way and then make a, a, either a yes or a no decision about yes, it's okay, no, it's not okay. And so we do that constantly, all the time. And we do it in, in reacting things, but quite as good about doing it with ourselves. We, we don't have that same, the same lens that we use to turn on other people is, is it's very difficult and it's rare. We're, we're not encouraged to turn it on ourselves and say, well, what about my behavior? What was, what was okay or not okay about what just transpired? And frequently I will get in situations where, um, you know, quite frankly, there, there are a lot of stresses and um, I try as much as I can to be mindful and to practice but sometimes I also don't, uh, you know, don't exhibit, you know, a perfect behavior. But I'm able to notice it in myself because of all the meditation. When you sit quietly uh, for hours or however long you're meditating for, and you are almost examining down to the breath work everything that's going on in your body and all the thoughts that are floating around in your mind you get very good at figuring out, oh, that I did not handle that well. That was not, um, I was not proud of that moment. Um, you, you get much, much better at being able to sort through those things for yourself. And then what also happens miraculously is that you end up having much more compassion for other people. So when you realize that you are also a sort of flawed human being with just all the abilities and all the sort of the wanting to be a good, perfect human being, but knowing that you fall short, I think it makes you that much more, when you've developed that self-compassion, you are then much more able to look at a situation and see when someone is suffering as opposed to reacting and saying, well, this person's screaming at me and I'm going to need to scream back. If I need to make myself heard, I'm just going to need to shout even louder as opposed to, you know, seeing what's happening with the other person and being able to say, wow, that person is suffering. I wonder what, I wonder what's really going on. I wonder what's happening in this moment for that person, for them to lose control that way. Hmm. I mean, it, it, it changes that perspective, I think, in some way that's very helpful in, especially I think in conflict resolution, where there is a lot of emotional content. There, there's a lot of very high emotion in those situations. Mm -hmm. So Michelle, as we're coming towards the end of our time together, the one phrase uh, that's arising for me as I, as I was listening to you and, and also uh, based on reading your book is this phrase from Jada Krishnamurti. Uh, one of the greatest Indian intellectuals of the, of the 20th century. Observation without evaluation is the highest form of intelligence. Mm. And as I'm listening to you, you know, I'm hearing this invitation to begin with observing ourselves and then start translating that into how we deal with other people, with our negotiating, negotiating partners, conflict partners, life partners, 
all of them, right. beginning by just observing ourselves and then observing them. So wondering, um, you know, before, before, before we leave today, if you have any thoughts or comments on that. I think that that is pretty much the essence of, of how these negotiations become transformative. Uh, it is definitely the, 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 the pairing of observation without the judgment. So being able to be detached enough, both from yourself and from making, sort of being self-compassionate, and then also towards other people that will give you the tools that you need to transform, as you said, any negotiation with anyone that you're having a negotiation with. Because then it becomes, again, about the human connection, about uh, the ability to allow the people to be themselves and to not be judged in a way, to be able to just come to the table and present their, themselves to you and for you to feel strong enough to present your true authentic self to them. And I think that, 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 that definitely is, I, I agree, um, the, the sort of the key principle of transformative negotiation. Well, Michelle, I am so grateful to you for, for joining us. I, I think we had a really, really wonderful conversation and I know our listeners will find it very, very useful uh, and enriching. So I wanna thank you for taking the time uh, to speak with me. Thank you.